One of the most famous and oft-cited passages of Scripture is the Lord's Prayer, which begins with the words, and I'm sure you all know this if you've been in church for any length of time, Our Father, who, are, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why does this portion of the prayer resonate with us so much? Because there is a petition there, isn't there? I think we're drawn to it because every Christian believer throughout the course of history has longed to see the kingdom of God made manifest on earth the very same way it is manifest in heaven. We want to see God's full glory with our own eyes. We want to see an end to wickedness and to suffering. We long for the righteousness of God to reign on the earth, and that is oftentimes my personal prayer, Lord, that your righteousness would reign on earth. We want peace and justice and joy and gladness. And yet we know that all in the world is not right. Sin and wickedness run rampant. Satan and his demons wage war. Our sinful flesh hijacks us at every twist and turn. And we long for Christ's eternal presence among us. But this longing expectation, that's not new to us. We're not the first believers ever to experience that. And if anyone in the course of her church history has longed for the kingdom, surely it was Jesus' own disciples. And he would encourage them with the hope of his coming kingdom. And so with that hope, we want to turn to Matthew chapter 13 in our copy of Scripture. We're working our way through all the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13. That really is uh, the parable chapter as we've seen. Uh, pretty much all except the last couple of verses contain some sort of parable or some explanation of a parable. And what is a parable? It is really a story or a situation that is used to illustrate a deeper truth. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago where Jesus used parables to teach the crowds about various things. He's going to use some more in the next couple of weeks as well as we study. But some parables teach us about the coming judgment, where others teach us about salvation. Some parables teach us about wisdom and folly, and others highlight the truths of the Christian life. However, many of Jesus' parables open up the various truths pertaining to the nature and the progress of the kingdom. In fact, Matthew 13 alone, Jesus teaches on the kingdom of heaven at least seven times. At least seven times it's mentioned there's implications even more than that. But we see this phrase uttered, the kingdom of heaven, in verse 24, 31, 33, 44, 45, 47, and verse 52. And in teaching on the kingdom, he's aiming to instruct us, to warn us, and to encourage us. And this morning, I, in our time we have together, I want to look at two key parables that help us understand the nature of the kingdom of heaven, namely the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And so look at this scripture with me, Matthew chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 31 to 35, 31 to 35. Matthew writes, he presented another parable to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them Without a parable, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, time permitting, I'm going to cover at least four main uh, topics this morning, or four main points this morning. I, of I oftentimes find when I'm doing preparation, I'll get moving along, and I, I do an outline generally, but I'll get moving along, and I'm Halfway through the sermon, I realize I have so much more that I want to say. And so the temptation is, do I preach what I call a, a kitchen sink sermon? We put everything in but the kitchen sink? 
or do I parse it out? And so you're always making decisions, but I really, I'm ambitious today. I want to cover a lot of territory, so I hope that you're going to buckle in with me here. But this morning I want to look at four things. I want to look at the meaning of the kingdom. Now that could be a whole sermon series, and that could be a series full of even theological debates too, but we're going to look at the meaning of the kingdom. We're going to look at both the meaning of the parable of the, the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, and then I also want to talk about the nature of Christ's fulfilled prophecy regarding parables. It is my sincere hope that today you'll both be informed. I want to teach you, but I also want to encourage you that you might be abounding with great joy and thanksgiving to our Lord. Now, in several places, the Lord Jesus Christ declares that the kingdom of heaven is like something, and he fills in the something with something else to which a word or a phrase is added. He says in one place today, it's like a mustard seed. He says it's like leaven. As we'll see next week, it's like treasure. It's like a merchant. The kingdom of heaven is like a man sowing seed, or maybe it's like a dragnet, or it's like a householder. All of these analogies are being used by our Lord to explain something that for our purposes, our eyes, our minds, is mysterious and fairly complicated, even though it's straightforward in terms of what it is and what it's not. But Jesus is trying to unravel a very complex spiritual reality and do it in a way that the general populace can understand. Now, as we're going to see, the general crowds, the unbelieving crowds, they will not understand. But for you and for me, for believers, Jesus is trying to help us understand a little bit more of what this is really like. Scripture does explain, or I should say, Scripture does not explain what the kingdom actually is. Rather, it just he explains what it's like. Never once does Jesus actually say, here's what the kingdom of God is, or here's what the kingdom of heaven is, and then give a definition. He never gives a definition, which is interesting to me. This has led Bible scholars to a conclusion that Jesus' original audience would have likely known what the kingdom of heaven is but yet they would have misunderstood what it's like, which is why Jesus fills in those blanks. They had an image in their mind already, and they were coming to expect a certain thing when they thought of kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, but yet Jesus comes to clarify and even correct their understandings and their misunderstandings. Now, while Jesus' original audience may have had a good working understanding of the doctrine of the kingdom, it has become a, a quite hotly debated topic in Christian theology over the last couple hundred years. When I was in seminary, I took a whole class just on the kingdom because I wanted to understand, and I read all the, the main texts of all the different arguments. There's at least, well, it's changing now, but at least four major positions on what the kingdom of God is. I think I've arrived at one I think is correct, but again, this is something that's hotly debated, and not every single believer is going to agree with me or even with you. But there are general trains of thought, I think, that we can stay within. But much of the discussion itself on the kingdom has centered around the use of terms, the key terms. And while other elements of the discussion have to do with the interpretation of key passages, and all, as well as the timing of key events. Now here's, here's where, where the kingdom comes in. The kingdom, in many regards, functions alongside what's called eschatology, or the doctrine of the end times. People always ask me, when are you going to teach on Revelation? Because we, you know, we look around outside what's going on in the world. We really want to get Revelation sometime soon, Pastor Nate. And I always say, I'll preach it later. And well, when later? After you're all gone. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it right now. No, but the, one of these days I will have to teach on it because I think it would be beneficial for this church, certainly for me. But, but those two, the kingdom of God and eschatology or end times, they go together. And here's what's challenging about kingdom and eschatology is there are so many moving parts, so many Bible verses. It's not like the doctrine of justification where you have your key texts. There's really only disagreement about a couple small things, but here is the doctrine. The kingdom is so much more vast, and the end times are so much more vast, I should say. So many things going on, so many key figures, so many verses, so many times, uh, timing situations. It's really hard, I think, to land because as soon as you have a position here, there's a refutation over here and here and here. That's not to say that we can't know anything, but there's going to be some things that are a little bit mysterious for us, and that's okay. And so what do we mean when we talk about the kingdom? The kingdom. 
Now, depending on your eschatology, some of you might get really angry with me this morning, and please forgive me, because I have a position, and I believe the church has a position on this, and we're going to move ahead, but we'll be charitable about what this is going to be. I told Pastor Dan this morning, my goal was to make everybody upset this morning, and that was, that was today's message, so hopefully not. No, again, I do hope this is going to be encouraging for you. The first thing to note is that there are many interchangeable terms pertaining to the kingdom. Without oversimplifying it, you see things like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, and for our purposes, they are essentially the same thing, essentially. Context is key, always, but it's the same basic idea. And when we speak about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we have to remember that it always entails at least these things. And understanding that there is going to be a king, and we know that that king, in our case, is God. God is the king over all. So there's the king, and then there's the kingdom. There is the realm which he exercises his rule and reign and dominion. And then along with that, there is an authority. There is an authority. The king's actual exercise of his reign and power and dominion. Now when we consider that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus is calling it, we begin to notice that from Scripture, there are various aspects and depictions of that kingdom. So when I say the word kingdom, I'm not talking about just one thing. And I'm going to elucidate all of this for you. It's not always the same reference each time. And that's going to become very clear when we talk about the parables here. Depending on the context of the passage, will determine the aspect of the kingdom that we're talking about. Many scholars have seen that there are essentially three key aspects to the kingdom of God. Again, there is some debate about this, but three key things that everybody can pretty much agree on. Number one, number one, there is God's universal kingdom. God's universal kingdom. This consists of everything that God has created, and therefore, because he's created all things, he owns all things. So when we're talking about the, the universal kingdom of God, it's everything. It's the cosmos. God is the all at once, the creator king. He is the upholder of the sustaining the order itself, the, the created order. And he is the sovereign Lord over everything he's made. And so there's not a, a tree or a branch or an ant or a blade of grass or a, a brain cell that is not functioning outside of his sovereign care and sovereign dominion. And the scripture even bears witness to this. In Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says, not even a sparrow, not even a little tiny bird will fall from, from the, the sky, fall to the ground apart from the providential knowledge of God. So God even knows about when the sparrows pass away. When, it, when a moth flies through your house and, and you swat it with a, whatever you swat a moth with. I won't get into what, the, what you swat moths with, but even that... Even the silly things that we think are silly, God is perfectly aware and sovereign over all things. And so in a very real and literal sense, everything belongs to God's kingdom. First Chronicles 29, 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Verse 12, both riches and honor come from you, and your rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make right and to strengthen everyone, end quote. If that's not a, de a, a declaration of the, the dominion in the kingdom of God, I don't know what is. Or Psalm 103, 19 declares, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. This is God's universal kingdom. There's nothing that is outside of God's care. God is in charge of all things universally. That's number one. The second aspect of the kingdom is God's spiritual kingdom of salvation. Now, normally when I define the kingdom in a text, so I'm working through a Bible passage and I hit the word kingdom, I don't always have the time to unpack all of this, and so my working definition is usually the rule and realm of salvation. Now, granted, that does encompass the universal kingdom because God has made all things, but it also narrows into uh, those whom God has saved and all the places where God has exercised his sovereign rule and all things that are submitted to that rule. 
Now that would also go against the kingdom of darkness. And so, yes, is God sovereign over the kingdom of darkness? Yes, but the kingdom of darkness is not subjected to him in obedience. So generally, I'll just say it is the rule and realm of God's salvation. But that's, again, very simplified. In Colossians 1.13, the Apostle Paul articulates, articulates that reality, what happens when a person is saved and removed from that kingdom of darkness and redeemed by Christ. Speaking of God, he writes, He, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, if you will. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you already see, even just from that verse alone, that the kingdom now even sort of uh, focuses in a little bit more narrow than just the universal worldwide kingdom. Now we're talking about a, a rule and realm of salvation, redemption that we have in Christ, the forgiveness of sins that we receive in Christ, new life, regeneration, a different position with God. All of that is encompassed in all of this. And in this way, sinners who are formerly enemies of God and rebels to his reign. Is God over them? Yes, but they are rebels to the reign and sovereignty of God. They're now brought into a saving relationship with him and transferred from one kingdom to the next. At this point, we enter into the spiritual and redemptive realm of God's kingdom. We become true subjects true citizens, and as the Bible says, true heirs with Christ. We actually become heirs of this kingdom, not just subjects, but we reign with Christ, the Bible says, even though he is our sovereign Lord. The very first advent of Christ, his, upon his death and resurrection, the gates of heaven were opened and believers were granted entrance into this heavenly kingdom, again, only through the saving work of Christ. But this is why Jesus repeatedly says things like, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's near, the nearness of the kingdom. At the very beginning of his ministry, Mark 1.15, Jesus announced, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, and therefore, what's his admonition? What's his response? Repent and believe the gospel. That's what he's talking about. He doesn't say the universal kingdom is near. We know that the universal kingdom's always here because God owns everything. He's talking about the salvific, the, the redemptive kingdom, the spiritual kingdom. And so anytime a sinner confesses their sins and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, they enter the kingdom of heaven spiritually, spiritually. And by doing so, the kingdom of heaven then expands. Every single time a sinner repents and they come into the kingdom, the kingdom of God grows. And all along with that salvation kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, we're not just talking about salvation. We're also talking about the fruit of that salvation, which is sanctification, growth in Christ's likeness. Your, your growth, your sanctification, your holiness is the fruit of God's kingdom working. It also includes the, the growth of the church, when the, when the church is expanding spiritually. I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about when people are coming to faith in Christ and joining the local assembly, when the ministry of the church is growing and expanding, we can say the kingdom of God is expanding. That also includes even the moral influence that we have over culture. Our job is not to reform and transform culture as a, as a, a prerogative, but that is the natural outflow of the kingdom of God expanding and growing on earth as it is in heaven. So the more faithful that you and I are to God and the more work is done here and the more he is growing the, the footprint and the, the influence of the church, we are having an impact on people around us. It's just the natural outcome of God's kingdom expanding. Again, this is the spiritual kingdom and as soon as you become a Christian, you become a part of that. You enter into that kingdom of heaven. There's one more aspect of the kingdom. And this is the aspect that gets discussed and talked about, and that's fair. It's a fair territory. This is not a gospel issue. It is an issue of interpretation. But there's one more, and that is what we call the future kingdom. Again, most hotly debated. Essentially, this refers to a future expression of God's kingdom on earth where Christ himself 
reigns bodily for a thousand years. This is oftentimes called the millennial kingdom. Now, there are three basic views on this. I know I said there's four, but two kind of meld together into one, and that's fair. But for the sake of our purposes today, three basic views. And while none of them deny the bodily return of Christ, okay, I want to make that very clear. Whether you're, you're pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, whatever your position is, no Christian view denies that Christ is coming again. That is ultimately where our hope is found, that Christ is coming again. So that is the, the very basic essential truth that we all have to rally around here. What is debated is whether or not Christ returns before this millennial kingdom, which is called premillennialism, whether he arrives after the kingdom is in place, which is called postmillennialism, again loosely, or whether Christ is already manifesting his full reign right now, which is known as amillennialism. Now, the teaching position of this church, as I expressed to you earlier, is that the return of Christ occurs before his earthly millennial kingdom. That's our position as a teaching board. But where does this thousand-year reign come from? Is this something we just made up for the doctrinal statement? No. One key text is Revelation chapter 20. The events of Revelation 20, they occur after the events of Revelation 19. What happens in Revelation 19? Christ returns. Glorious passage of scripture talking about the return of Christ on a white horse, a sword protruding from his mouth. You, you know the passage, you know the imagery. Christ returns. It consists of the saints of God reigning with Christ on earth then in chapter 20 for a thousand years. In fact, the phrase thousand years is repeated six times in that passage. During that time, Christ exerts his full reign over the world, binding Satan, subduing evil, and subjecting all the nations to himself. Now again, whole books have been written in defense of this view and also in opposition to this view, all of which offer countless verses of support. You can have this millennial view and you have all the Bible verses for that. You could have this millennial view and have all the Bible verses for that. So it's not an issue of who, you, who is using the Bible. We're all using the Bible. It's, that's true. The issue is how do you interpret what these verses and passages mean? That's the question again. And one, one more thing, and I just want to make sure I emphasize this, this is not a saving gospel issue. Too many churches, and I've, I've, I'll be very honest with you, beloved, I have, have shied away from end times teaching on eschatology and things of the kingdom only because in the life of our church, I've seen churches at this age, this stage, this maturity, fight and devour each other over end times. And frankly, it's wrong. I've seen churches divide over end times, and it's just flat wrong, especially in New England, when the mission is so much grander than having us debate over secondary issues. It does not mean it's not important, though. And so anytime the text of Scripture speaks to this issue, I'm going to teach it, and Pastor Dan's going to teach it, and the elders are going to teach it, as often as we are afforded the opportunity to do so. Again, so we want to establish our view, make our case, absolutely believe what's true, but in the end, know that Good brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to have disagreements about this and it's going to be okay. We'll get through to the end and we'll see you in the millennial kingdom. I'm sorry. <laughs> One verse that I find particularly helpful in Acts 1.6, it comes to my mind because it, again, talks about the anticipation that the apostles have. And again, these are, the crowds are listening to all the Lord's parables, and they don't hear a word he has to say because they're not, they don't belong to him. But the, disciple, the disciples are listening, and the apostles are listening, and they know what's going on here. And so Jesus preaches, he goes to the cross, he dies, he's buried in the ground, he resurrects. And after he has died on the cross for sins, and after he's been buried, and after he resurrects, he's about to ascend back to heaven. And the disciples ask him a question when they see him. And their question to Jesus before he goes back into heaven, he asks, they ask him this, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Their question's about kingdom. We want to know. Because you're about to leave. We're not going to see you. You said you're going away. But is this going to be it right now? Are you going to do it right now? Because that's their expectation. They expected it on Palm Sunday. When Jesus comes in on the back of the foal, of the, the donkey, they're waving branches, they're praising, they're singing hallelujah, they're saying hosanna, save now, save now. They were expecting Jesus to come in, deliver them on earth from Roman opposition and sit on the throne of David. They were waiting for that. And then when it doesn't happen, 
they say, well, that's obviously not the king because he didn't come and reign right now. We're still under oppression from Roman occupation. They expected the Messiah. They expected him to overthrow earthly powers, to subdue enemies, to reign on earth. They expected a dominant Israel. And so that's in the minds of the disciples. They say, Lord, are you going to do it now? You didn't do it last a couple weeks ago, but are you going to do it right now? And Jesus gives this answer. It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he tells them to wait for the Spirit to come at Pentecost. He's going to come and he's going to do something else. And then as soon as he ascends up into heaven, they're standing there watching him go, and an angel appears and says, why do you stand here looking at the sky? Why why are you looking upwards? As if he's going to come back right now. He's not coming back right now. That's the implication. But he says, this Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you saw him go. So Christ will return from heaven bodily the exact same way that he went up. That's a biblical truth. He's coming back. And so many people will claim to be Christians and not acknowledge the bodily return of Christ. He's coming back. When when is he going to come back? Let me just say to you, anyone who gives you a date, don't listen. They're wrong. I'm being serious. People have lost their fortunes, lost their faith, lost their homes, lost their retirements. Because some knuckle brain on TV told them on May 20th he's going to come, and he doesn't come, and everything gets blown apart. Don't listen. If Jesus didn't feel like he wanted to tell the disciples at his, at his ascension, he's not, then someone else is going to tell you either. So don't listen to date setters. That is not going to be the case. There are signs that we're going to know, but we are to wait expectantly for his return. And when he decides he's going to come, he will come and find his bride ready for him. But he tells them, the angel tells them, he's going to come back. Now again, they don't know exactly what's going on. They weren't obviously asking him about the the universal kingdom. Are you going to establish the universal kingdom to Israel? That's not what what they're looking for. As for the spiritual kingdom, that's what's already been going on. They already bear witness to the fact. And they go actually go out preaching. He tells them to go into Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, into the remotest parts of the world. They're preaching this spiritual kingdom. That's their ministry now. But the realization has, has been made here that they're not going to experience, at least in their lifetime, a, a manifestation of Christ on earth reigning in Israel as king. He's not going to do that right then, and he hasn't done it ever since. Reign here physically, bodily, on earth. That's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for this expression of the visible earthly kingdom. And so it continues to be our prayer. Your kingdom come, O Lord. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what is it, the nature, that is being taught here in the parables? Because all we've looked at so far is what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of heaven? But I want to look at the parables now because Jesus gives us a little bit of insight into what he's talking about. Let's look at these parables, Matthew 13, 31 through 33. Two parables here. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And then he gives them another parable in verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, these two parables that has been observed, these two parables, they work together as a pair. I don't want to say they're a pair of bulls. They're not a pair of bulls, but they work together as parables, okay? Both convey truths of the nature and the advance of the kingdom of heaven. The first one here is the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed, which he says, a man took and sowed in his field. Jesus continues on with this sowing and reaping theme. And we've seen this uh, the last couple of parables where he says that uh, he talks about a parable going out to sow seed. And that becomes the theme in that section. And then he talks about sowing good seed and having an enemy come in and then sow bad seed. So there's this sowing and reaping metaphor that keeps on coming back around him. And this is what he uses again here, this sowing and reaping. But here he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. So now imagine a a sower sowing a mustard seed in the ground. And what is so noteworthy about this? He says in verse 32, And this seed is smaller than all other seeds, 
Now, some have seized on that distinction to point out a supposed error in the Bible. And I've actually read this, and it's kind of, it blows me away that they would use that as a reason to say the Bible's not inerrant. Well, why? Well, because the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the world. There are others. But that's not the point. Because Jesus is not speaking of this horticulturally. He's not doing this to talk about the size of seeds and the rate of growth and the kind of genus and phylum and all that other stuff. He's using the, the mustard seed as an illustration. Yes, there are other seeds that are smaller in the world, but in terms of their experience of, of the crowd he's talking to, in all of the gardening that they do, they know that the mustard seed is pretty small, certainly smaller than other seeds that get planted. And so it's a comparative statement. It's like a mustard seed, and it's the, the smallest seed you have, and they all shake their heads and go, yeah, it's pretty small. They know what he's talking about. But the purpose here is to distinguish and illustrate the stark contrast between these seeds and those seeds, this plant and those plants. That's the point. And while other seeds are a little bigger in size and they grow into you know, bushes of maybe yay tall or two feet tall, three feet tall, whatever it's going to be, small shrubs, this says, or Jesus says of this seed, when it is fully grown, it becomes a very large plant. And I was looking up this week, some mustard uh, bushes and trees can actually grow to be 10 or 15 feet tall. And so these aren't small little tiny shrubs. They can be quite large. Again, not the largest tree in the world, but they're comparatively a lot larger. And Jesus notes then, this tiny seed produces a plant that is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Again, the purpose of the contrast is to show that something so small can become something very significant and large and grandiose. What is the parable teaching? That's what, we, that's what the parable says, but what does it mean? What does this parable mean? Very simply, it illustrates the nature of the growth of God's spiritual kingdom. It's the nature of the growth of the kingdom. In Jesus' day, it would have seen, began with 12 unassuming disciples. Now, there were certainly others, but he really built on these 12, and one of them was a devil. He builds this, this, the beginnings of this kingdom through 12 men. At that time... Can you imagine? Now, we have, we're kind of at a disadvantage because we're looking back into this narrative. We're looking back in time. But can you imagine being a disciple? And you're growing up and you have 20, 30, 40 years of Jewish history behind you. Messiah comes. He starts telling you things that don't sound like what your early rabbis were telling you because he is the Lord and he knows all truth. And he tells you he's building something new. Not old wine into old wineskins here. We're talking about something brand new. Something different. Something totally unlike you've ever seen before. And he's called you into a room and he sat you down and he says, I'm going to do this through you guys. And they're thinking, well, some of them are thinking to themselves, oh, wow, I get to be these huge, wonderful, powerful, king-like people. And other disciples are thinking, me, Lord? Can you imagine 12 people in a room I'm going to change the world through you guys. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? How in the world, Lord, are you going to bring about and build this kingdom through us? We're not even rabbis. We're fishermen and tax collectors and worse. And so at that time, it would have felt impossible. But just like the mustard seed, the kingdom grows slowly but steadily. Slowly but steadily. And again, we have the benefit of looking back over 20 centuries to the point where now Christianity is one of the three or four most dominant religions in the entire world with millions, if not billions, of professing believers. Even now, we see popular movements come and go. We see all kinds of things rise up. This, this new movement comes up and within five or ten years it's gone. This new movement comes up or this new religion comes and then it's gone. But Christianity, the truth of the kingdom of heaven, it stays steady and steadfast. It keeps on plodding along, plodding along, slow and steady. And no matter what happens in the world, kingdoms and empires, they rise and they fall, and there's the church. 
They rise and they fall, and there's the church. The Roman Empire. We see all the different things with the, the Turkish Empire, which overtook the Roman Empire. We see all things happening with the Reformation. Things happening in England and New England, around the world, persecuted China right now. I mean, they're, they're outlawing Christianity. It's illegal to be a Christian in China, and guess what? Churches are sprouting up all over the place. Why? Because Christ is building his kingdom just like the mustard seed, he's planted it, and it's going to continue to grow until it gets to the point where there's, there's no denying. Birds are coming and nesting in the branches of this thing. It's so huge. How did this happen? They scratched their heads. Stalin wondered, how did this happen? We outlawed and killed them by the droves, and yet the kingdom is still here. How? Jesus promised it. What about the parable of Levin? We know that the kingdom grows slow and steady and becomes grand. What about the parable of the leaven? Look at verse 33. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now here, Jesus switches the metaphor. He does this a lot. He switches the metaphor because he wants to give an, another kind of teaching. It's almost as if he, he takes one metaphor so far and he sees a couple of puzzled looks in the room and he says, well, let me, sh let me share it a different way. He's always changing and shifting because he wants people to understand. He wants his church to understand. And so he gives a different metaphor here. And now he's going to talk about the kingdom as leaven. What is leaven? I had to look this up this week. What is leaven? Well, when baking a loaf of bread, you, it's not uncommon. Certainly you have to take yeast. The yeast has to go into the dough, and then the dough has to rise, and you cook it. You could cook unleavened bread if you want to, but leavened bread is tastier. I think it's just better. But you rise it with this yeast. It has to ferment before you can put it in. However, it is not uncommon to save out a small piece of that dough and then reuse that dough over and over again to leaven or, or ferment a, a new piece of dough. And it's, it's a starter. It's, it, it, some people call this a mother. You can use a, one piece of leaven over and over again. And once that small piece is kneaded into the new dough, it eventually brings in the yeast and the fermentation to the new dough, and it will do the entire thing. The whole thing becomes leavened, if you will. Um, again, I'm not a, a bread baker, so I had to really research here, but I was looking up all these different starter ideas and, and looking at, oh, how long can you take this piece of dough, this leaven, and keep on going? Well, I looked it up this week, and there are some recipes where they can trace the leaven back a hundred years. So one piece of leaven they broke off and you knead into a new piece of bread and then you, you bake that but you've saved a piece from that and you keep on moving along and it's not uncommon for, for, for mothers to pass down a, a yeast that you've cultivated over time and that becomes a, a gift and some people use it even as a wedding gift. So you could, you could be baking a loaf of bread that came from a yeast that your great-grandmother baked 150 years ago. It's possible. So 100 years, I, I saw that there was even one recipe that went back 400 years, and the oldest reported yeast that's been carried down or, or cultivated, they have found yeast that is up to 4,500 years old. It's called the Egyptian mother, and it's this recipe that they can trace back four millennia, if not longer. So what's the big idea here? Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a small lump of yeasted dough. It's leaven. And what is this leaven added to? Jesus figures this woman who's doing this, and he says, a woman who took this leaven, took it, and hid it in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Well, how much is three pecks of flour? I had to look that up too, because I don't know. It's hard to know. They actually don't know biblically what this is. They have some thoughts about how much this is, and one estimate is that three pecks in the ancient world is equivalent to 24 quarts of flour today. That's a lot of flour. Some scholars have even estimated that this, was, this loaf is large enough to feed 100 people. It's a huge, huge piece of dough. One scholar even said that this is the largest piece of dough a single person could actually need and not, uh, not fail at the, at the endeavor. So it's a very large piece. And so what is he saying here? He's saying a very small piece of leaven can go into a large piece of dough, and before you know, it will ferment the entire thing in this entire massive lump of dough all becomes leavened with that small piece of leaven. What does this mean? What does this mean? 
Because here's what's curious about this. Many passages liken leaven, as, a, as a, an imagery, leaven to sinfulness. Leaven in the Bible is oftentimes equated to sinfulness. The Apostle Paul warns the Corinthians because they're enabling debauchery among them. And he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Don't you know that if you, if you knead in a little bit of sinfulness, that the whole thing's going to become sinful before you know it? That's a, that's, an, that's a common axiom. All Jews knew that phrase. They'd been hearing that since they were kids. They heard that from Leviticus. That this leaven, you, you can't leaven a little bit of sinfulness in it. It will wreck the whole thing. Because for the people of Israel, why do you think God was so severe in his judgments about one sinning person? Because one sinning person, you get a person like Achan to disobey the Lord, that's going to permeate the entire camp. A million people, two million people are all going to fall into sin and transgression because of one person. So God deals with Achan severely in Joshua, I believe it's chapter 7. So that's the general census. consensus is that, well, leaven is sinfulness. But again, Jesus flips the metaphor. Here, it's not sinfulness. He uses leaven in a different way. He uses leaven imagery to talk about the, the permeating power and the presence of the kingdom of God. And once the gospel comes in, like that little tiny piece of leaven, you walk up to somebody and you say, well, I want to talk to you about something, and you share the gospel, and you share the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Once that begins to work, it has a permeating effect. And before you know, not only has that gospel, the message of that salvation, transformed their entire life because their faith is now in Christ, but as soon as you believe on Christ and he transfers you from one kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son to the kingdom of light, all of a sudden now that little message you believe, those couple of words that somebody spoke to you, now your entire life has become transformed. Are there still vestiges of sinfulness in your life as a, as a person who's in the flesh in this world? Of course there are. But the point is, is that the, the gospel has a transformative effect on the whole person. More than this, once the gospel comes to an unreached people group, once the gospel comes to a town or a nation, next thing you know, it begins to permeate. That's what's happening in China right now. Somebody brought the gospel in, and it's just, and it's just permeating. It's like leaven. It's being kneaded into every corner and every fabric of that society. It happened in Gilmanton 250 years ago. The gospel came in, and the church began to grow. The next thing you know, there were, there were revivals in Gilmanton, believe it or not. Ministry was faithful over the course of time. For 100 years, there was faithfulness in Gilmanton. And so, the Bible says, Isaiah 55, 11, that God promises that his word is not going to return to him void. I'm not going to go and use a piece of leaven, and it's going to die on me. Now, that piece of leaven is going to work, and it's going to permeate every single place I want it to permeate, and it's going to accomplish what I intend for it to accomplish. Again, this potent, faithful witness of these small number of disciples. Twelve guys, and one of them fell away. He was replaced, but these, these disciples, these apostles, they scattered, didn't they? And they began to walk on foot to this city, and then walk to that city, and then walk to that city. Look up how the, the church in Philippi was started. A demon-possessed girl and a lady who sold fabric. That's how it started. And the, the gospel goes out, and next thing you know, there's a church there. And then two churches there. And then three. Next thing you know, some, there have been some times in history when whole cities, maybe they're not all Christians, but whole cities are submitted to the reign of Christ. It happens. Remember, we said that both of these parables work together. They work together to illustrate this point. William Hendrickson has noted that the parable of the mustard seed pointed to the outward growth of the kingdom, while the parable of the leaven pointed to the inward growth of the kingdom. Or as R.C. Sproul distinguishes, the first speaks of the kingdom as small but growing, and it speaks of the second as hidden but working. Both are true. The kingdom of heaven is small, but it is growing. It is hidden. You can't always see it, but it's working. Trust that it's working. And that's where, where I want to encourage you this morning. Not to be discouraged when you don't see things happening the way that you want. It's very easy to look at culture right now and think to yourself, we're losing so bad. Things are going down. I think God forgot about us. That's how it feels sometimes. Where, where wickedness and evil are reigning. 
on a mass level, but we don't see what's going on underneath. We don't see the churches that are sprouting up and people that are turning to Christ because everything else in their life has fallen apart. We don't see what God sees. And so, yes, it feels small. It feels like we're the underdog, but it's like the mustard seed. It's growing, and it will continue to grow. And the kingdom of heaven will outlast America. It will outlast this world. It will keep on going. And in terms of the effectiveness of the kingdom, God's gospel overpowers the most sinful and hardened heart. The gospel is the most powerful weapon that we have against the kingdom of darkness. We think it's something else. We think it's the message of social justice. That's useless to fight the kingdom of darkness. We think it's self-embetterment or self-importance. It's useless. Oh, just be strong, be proud, be brave. Well, guess what? When you realize how sinful you are, that falls apart real quick. Cultural, Cultural movements, I mean, all of this is totally useless. Why? Because the, the, the inherent problem of every single person, every single culture, every single kingdom, the inherent problem is the sinfulness of the human heart. And the only solution is the only solution we have is the message of the gospel. And Romans 1.16 says it is the power of God for salvation to all who believes. You're not going to change people by giving them something else. You're not going to wow them with an amazing light show at church and smoke machines and rock concerts. You're just not going to happen. Is that fun sometimes? Of course it's fun. Not going to happen here, but it's fun. (laughs) But is that really what does it? Can we just draw them in and wow them until they eventually bow the knee? No, it's the gospel, my friends. The gospel of the kingdom. That's the only thing we have. It's the only value that we bring is the word of God and his gospel. But it has a powerful effect. And I'll tell you, it doesn't always accomplish what you and I think it might accomplish. We know that the kingdom is advancing. And then Matthew really caps off this discourse by explaining verses 34 and 35 very quickly here. Matthew says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. We noted a couple of weeks ago that the purpose of the parables is twofold. It does reveal truth to those who are being saved, but it also conceals truth from those who've hardened their hearts against the Lord. Matthew notes here in verse 34 that while he taught among the crowds, he always used a parable when he taught the crowds. It doesn't mean that he always only ever used parables. He did teach them other things, but he never spoke to the crowds without a parable. And again, this is in part, as we sift through the spiritual condition of all the people that are around him, this is in part to to accomplish a purpose. Look at verse 35. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. This comes from Psalm 78, verse 2. In Psalm 78, the psalmist who's named Asaph in this case, he's using Israel's own history as an instructive tool. And this, this is done not for the purpose of, uh, of the current generation, but it's done for the benefit of future generations. Just listen to this very quickly here. Just I'm going to read to you the first couple of verses of Psalm 78. This is Asaph, the psalmist. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. This is mysterious sayings, he means, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. And so in the same time that the parables are being used by Asaph to teach a future generation, that's what Jesus is doing here himself. He uses these parables for the purpose of concealing divine truth from the crowds. And in some cases, the very same people are going to kill him in a few weeks But he he offers these parables to future generations for the purpose of of teaching them the marvelous ways of God. You and I get to be benefactors or or beneficiaries, I should say, of the truth of these parables. He did this for us and for every other generation who've heard this. And he offers these parables to future generations. And he builds his kingdom this way. He uses teaching over and over again in many different illustrations and many different ways and stories and metaphors 
And he builds this kingdom slowly and unassumedly and powerfully. And he adds regenerated new believers to the flock despite worldly opposition. Ever notice that when things get really bad in the world, the churches grow? Why is that? That's what God does. He uses worldly means. He uses these terrible situations to draw people out of the world and bring them to himself. Bible teaching churches during COVID have exploded. I don't know a single pastor friend of mine who teaches the Bible faithfully who their church isn't growing right now. Why is that? Is it because Bible teachers were better people? No. It's because the Word of God has power. And when you couple the Word of God's power to a person who's in desperation who realizes their need for the Savior, they run to truth. And that's what's happening. The culture is degrading, people are struggling, and they run to truth because that's all I have. That's all we need. Because in the end, again, nations will rise and fall, but the truth of God will remain forever. And yet, despite all of this, Christ is building his church. And yet we know that one day the, the Lord will return and he will come and judge the nations and he will destroy opposition and he will establish his earthly kingdom and he will reign. First for a thousand years here and then after the final judgment in the new heavens and the new earth forever. What's the point? Be encouraged. Be encouraged. God is doing things that you have no idea what's going on. He does things behind the scenes, within our midst, sometimes and often despite our flaws and mistakes. He's always working. And His kingdom will come and His sovereign will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank You for Your loving kindness and Your truth. God, you give us these verses, and Lord Jesus, you have given us these parables. And Spirit of God, you have applied this knowledge to our hearts to help us understand what this is like. And Lord, I just confess to you as a teacher that there is, there is interpretation to some of this that maybe there, there is misunderstanding in small places, Lord. We don't fully understand what you understand. But Father, we can build our hope and our life on absolute truth that you are sovereign and you are the Lord and you are reigning in the lives and hearts of believers. You're reigning over all the created order and you will have dominion over all things. All nations will be subjected to you. Psalm 2 says that you sit and scoff and laugh at the nations in derision as they oppose you. You are the sovereign Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged. I pray that we would not grow weary with fear. I pray we also not grow prideful in what we think we know. But, Lord, to submit ourselves humbly underneath your word and say, Lord, we desire for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our desire. We want to see your righteousness. We want to see your holiness, Lord. And so manifest that in our own lives. Help us individually to submit ourselves to you and to acknowledge you rightly as our sovereign Lord. And Father, every time we do that, we are submitting ourselves and getting closer to you relationally in communion. And we thank you for that, that blessing that we have. And Lord, why do we even have it? We have it because you sent your son to give his life on the cross, to die for our sins, to pay for our sins, to reconcile us to you. And you forgive our sins because of the blood of Christ. If we would only repent and believe, and the Bible says if we do repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we will have eternal life forever. We thank you for the blessing of this. In Jesus' name, amen.